welcome everyone to episode 111 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, it's finally happening. We are ripping the band-aid off a film that has been out for over a month now, Christopher Nolan's latest film, the spy thriller, Tenet. Unfortunately, our Countdown Series guest, Jay Habib, could not be here today to record as he hasn't seen the film due to New York City's understandable hesitancy to reopen movie theaters. But with me today to do the appropriately titled episode 111 for Tenet, Two Palindromes, I do have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? Are you excited to finally be talking about this one? Sure, but not excited as not as excited as you probably, but uh, I'm definitely excited uh, to talk about this movie. Um, obviously, there is a lot to talk about, as with any Christopher Nolan movie. It's the reason we did a whole series on his films. Um, some of the episodes were close to two hours, so um, there there are always uh, you know a lot of talking points from his films. Hopefully, this one won't be two hours, but we'll see. We'll see how the discussion goes. But um, yeah, no, it's funny, Scott. Uh, if you listen back to our last episode when, during this uh, portion of the show, when you asked me how I was um, yeah. and I was talking about how all, all my sports teams won, which means something terrible was probably going to happen this week. The Indians did get swept, um, but it was mostly good otherwise. Um, but then you also said, I think what's, what really is going to happen, what that really means is that something terrible is going to happen in the real world to offset, um, you know, the, the winning the that karma. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess there is some debate about whether what ha- has happened is in fact terrible, but um, it is in fact momentous what has happened in the real world. So it is. I think your words were maybe somewhat prophetic last week uh, when we when we had this uh, portion of the show, which is funny. It's it's not the first time one of us has done that. I feel like in uh, yeah. this portion of the show where we've made some sort of prediction that either comes true or sounds hilariously off base, um, yeah. like a few weeks later. Yeah, it's it's particularly funny in the countdown series when not not for the most recent countdown series because we've done it pretty tight uh, on the recording, but on the Nolan countdown series, sometimes there was months between when we recorded an episode and when it actually published, and it was really funny to listen to some of those episodes. Yeah, because uh, we were like pre-COVID when we started it. Yeah, and yeah, we were. It was February when we started, and then deep into it by the end. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it is funny sometimes to go back and and listen to what we're saying on the editing version. But yeah, you're right. Movie theaters closing was a really prophetic statement. Uh, that I made last week, and which I'm 100% sure is what you're referring to when you said mo- <laughs> something momentous that's happened. Oh, yeah, week. of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that is interesting to think about. I haven't thought about that too much on, on the podcast here, but you're right. Uh, look, like big big stuff has happened this week. I was actually scrolling through Twitter as I was eating dinner right before we started recording this and seeing uh, someone comment on how what really is telling about everything that's going on there is the number of times that he's tweeted in the last 24 hours, which is zero. He's tweeted zero times in the last 24 hours. So that is yeah, which probably is interesting to, Because I was always under the impression that he wasn't writing his own tweets. So, but maybe that is, maybe that's part of the act, right? Maybe that is his yeah. tweeting team are like, oh, well, hey, he wouldn't be tweeting now. So we're not going to tweet for him. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not to get too, not to, not to t- spend too much time talking about politics, but I, you know, when it, the news first came out that, that he had tested positive for coronavirus, I was very skeptical of, whether or not that was even true or whether yeah, that was, was some I, yeah. political tactic, um, which I think is understandable based on the disinformation that constantly happens uh, with this information or with this, sorry, with, the, with this administration. Uh, but when he went to the hospital, I was like, okay, well, maybe this is serious because there's no way on earth he'd go to the hospital unless he felt like he needed to. Uh, just absolutely no way. His masculinity wouldn't allow it. Yeah. I mean, and I don't even think he would have, yeah, like, I don't think he would have tweeted about it. Um, I mean, I think that's maybe the the other point or whatever, the fact that he tweeted about it. Um, 
suggests that, wow, uh, you know, he, he may actually have this or, or, you know, that maybe he just felt like he, this was something that he wasn't going to be able to keep a secret no matter what. Right. Like if, if he had yeah. COVID, like there, there was going to be no way. So he might as well go ahead and get it out there and control the narrative. But it does definitely seem to, to fly in the face of a lot of the, you know, uh, stuff that he has said about the virus over the past few months. Um, yeah. Now that, that whole, what the, is it the ACB uh, announcement press conference yeah. or, or whatever is like a super spreader event now for all yeah, watching the videos of, of like Mike Lee going around hugging everyone is just kind yeah. of terrifying now. But. No one wearing a mask and yeah, all, of them, of all so. of them testing positive for coronavirus. Thank, I mean, I say thank God, but like, luckily the debate doesn't seem to have become a super spreader event, um, which was a couple of days after that, of course. And, and, and Trump and, and Melania showed up late to the debate purposely so that they wouldn't be tested. They showed up after everyone was tested. Oh, uh, well, I didn't even realize that. People, That's what... people were concerned that he might have had it at that point. I mean, Joe Biden didn't get it. So that probably means he didn't have it. But regardless, like uh, showing well, up to not get tested is like incredibly yeah. irresponsible. Yeah. You're, you're also, I mean, marginally, right? Not completely, but like less symptomatic when you aren't showing symptoms. And yeah. it's like, that's true for like all, all, yeah. most, almost less all contagious, you mean? Yeah. When you're not showing symptoms. Yeah. I don't, yeah. That's less symptomatic when you're not. Yeah. Showing, no, I got you. Yeah. yeah. Less contagious when you're not showing symptoms. Um, that doesn't mean he couldn't have still given it to a bunch of people sure. there. But yeah, when I'm one of the news or whatever that Hope Hicks or had contracted, and I was like, oh boy, because she's like his top eight or whatever at this yeah. point. So yeah. Anyway. The real reason we came to the podcast today, which I cannot even believe we let us get sidetracked for five or six minutes before we even got to it. How, how could I? Um, but yeah, let's get on with it. As I've already mentioned, Tenet is the next film from the mind of Christopher Nolan and is, of course, a time and mind bending spy thriller starring John David Washington as simply the protagonist, a CIA agent turned tenant operative whose mission is to save the world. Robert Pattinson as Neil, the protagonist handler, Kenneth Branagh as Andre Sator, a Russian oligarch with a mysterious ability to communicate with the future, and Elizabeth Debicki as Kat Barton, Sador's wife. Tenet opens with a very Nolan-y action set piece, the siege of a Kiev opera house, where the protagonist is operating undercover to extract an exposed CIA agent. Although able to retrieve the agent and the artifact he was carrying, the protagonist's team is captured by Russian mercenaries before they're able to escape, and all are tortured and killed except the protagonist, who believed he had taken a cyanide pill. But that CIA-issued pill was fake, and he awakens on a boat to learn his team has been killed, the artifact lost, and that he now works for a mysterious international organization that uses a gesture, interlocked fingers, and a word, tenet, to identify themselves. Armed with this very limited knowledge, the protagonist quickly learns more about his mission from a scientist studying inverted bullets, bullets whose entropy has been inverted and therefore travel backwards through time. And this discovery leads him to an arms dealer in India who informs him that Russian oligarch Andrei Sator is the one who has been inverting the bullets thanks to a mysterious ability to communicate with the future and that he has a much larger plan for his inversion technology that could spell doom for the entire world. Of course, the protagonist's mission is to prevent Sator's plan from coming to fruition. So, Scott, did Chris Nolan's latest mindbender leave you awe-inspired and grateful for the reopening of theaters, however brief that may end up being? Or did it leave you shaking your head more than scratching it? First of all, everyone, did you get all of that? <laughs> because I, I think that's a question you'll be asking yourself, um, certainly at times throughout the, the movie, let alone just in that uh, plot description uh, there, which had, uh, you know, which has a lot to it, obviously, just describing what this movie is about has a lot to it. But um, look, I, during the Nolan series, if you listen to it, I 
it, by the end, I kind of had come to realize that actually this recent period of Nolan's filmography um, is probably my favorite period in his filmography, specifically the last three films, right? The Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, and Dunkirk um, are all really top tier for me. And I think the reason is because they all have emotional resonance. And um, particularly in the case of the last two films, Dunkirk and Interstellar, I think, and they all really struck me on an emotional level that maybe some of his earlier uh, films that, yes, while very successful at what they do, like Inception um, or The Prestige, um, uh, you know, didn't necessarily connect with me in that way. And that is just something that um, is a quality of many of my favorite films. So that is why I just, you know, consider those films, those recent three to be, you know, among the top of his filmography. Um, and so going into this, obviously, I was like, hey, he's on his biggest hot streak of his career for me. Um, but then I was reading reviews and it was kind of like, oh, this sounds like the type of Nolan film that I typically don't enjoy. Right. That, or, well, not that I don't enjoy. Right. That I don't enjoy as much as, um, you know, the three films that I just said, because it seems like it's very from what people were saying, it's very uh, emotionally hollow. Like there's there's not much uh, in the way of it's very cold, cold, I guess. The, the characters don't emote very much. There's not a lot of heart in the film. Um, and so I was like, eh, this seems like it's going to be something more on the, the level of an, you know, inception prestige, something like that for me. Um, and it was in the ultimately it was, um, that, however, I think it was a little bit better than my expectations were, um, going into it. I, I mean, I definitely did enjoy the film quite a bit. Um, you know, not, not least of, uh, which is what is because of getting to see it in theaters, right? Because, um, this movie yeah, I mean, Nolan was right about one thing, which is that uh, this movie needs to be seen in theaters. Um, he was not right about how many people would actually go see it in theaters. Um, but regardless, uh, this movie, yes, it, it absolutely needs the theatrical experience. And I'm glad that I did go have the theatrical experience with it. Um, and I've seen it 1.75 times now. I explained before that the movie crapped out in the last 45 minutes the first time I went to see it, had to come back the next night and I just watched the whole thing. Um, so I, I've seen it almost two times. Um, and yeah, there's just moments like from the very beginning, right? Like having this, I mean, obviously we saw the new mutants first, but you know, that was a stinker. So this, having this like first scene kick in where, uh, you know, it's in the opera house, Ludwig Gorenson co contributes what I think is a really like great epic propulsive score. Um, you have these like soldiers and everyone running through this opera house, like the percussion on the score is like, uh, almost in step with their um, like their steps that are you know running in into the opera house like when their feet are pounding on the ground it's like percussion okay. is pounding on and I was like okay great I'm watching a movie now like this is the first time in a while that I felt like this um, and there are plenty of moments like that throughout the film I think some of the action is truly truly mind blowing particularly in the last part of the film but um, I think that what I enjoy about this film is that. Um, this movie actually doesn't take itself as seriously, I think, as people are are maybe making it out to be. Yes, definitely, there are there are you know I, I wouldn't say that it has much of a heart to it, right? Like certainly not on the level of something like Interstellar or Dunkirk. Um, but I think that for once, Nolan seems to know exactly what type of film that he's making, right? Like you said, this is a spy thriller, and that's what it is, right? It's not trying to pretend; it's not pretending to be anything more than a spy thriller. I think. Whereas Inception, I think. Uh, and maybe prestige, maybe memento, like they had some really lofty ideas about them. Right. Um, and you know, they, he really wanted to like critically engage you and think about the concepts that are going on, even inception, right. Which like has, you know, 
very complex plot, uh, a lot to wrap your head around, but he wants you to think about dreams and, and you know, all of that. Whereas here, like, the, the plot is so complicated and so, like, absurd, to be quite honest, that I don't think that anyone could be under the impression that there's anything to take from this film other than it was it entertaining, was it enjoyable, right? And I think Christopher Nolan knows this as well, um, particularly with the casting choice of Kenneth Brown, which we'll talk about. I think that's a sign, to me at least. Um, and so I appreciated that he's like, hey, I'm not going to pretend like this is some big, important movie. Um, I just want people to have a good time with this. And for the most part, I did have a good time. It's very hard to follow, um, particularly on a first watch. I'm glad I went back uh, and watched it, um, you know, the next night. What well, I'm glad I went back for the beginning of the movie the next night and watched the entire thing instead of just coming back for the portion that I missed. Um, but I think the cast is really good. Uh, I guess my my caveat is just that, and you're going to talk about, yeah, you've seen it like five times now. Um, and like, I, I totally understand going to see a movie five times in theaters. Uh, like, obviously, I saw Little Women four times in 1917 a few times. Uh, several movies last year I saw multiple times in theaters. I totally get that. This movie, like, since I saw it for that second time, I haven't really thought about going back to see it at all in the theater. Like, you've asked me even a couple times, like, are you going to go see it tenant again before it leaves or before, uh, you know, movie theaters close again? And I'm like, maybe. I'm, I'm not itching to get back out there. Uh, and I think that that's frankly because this is like in the bottom half of Nolan films for me comfortably, um, which is not a bad thing. Again, he, yeah. there, it's a high I, bar. I enjoy a lot about most all of his films. Um, yeah. But I, it doesn't have that rewatch value that even something like Inception had, right? Like, I, and I, I admit that Inception, again, leaves me a little cold, leaves me a little lacking in the emotional department, maybe outside of the Leonardo DiCaprio stuff with his relationship. Um, but even still, after I saw that movie, I was like, I got to go see this again. I think I saw it two or three times in theaters back before I ever went to see movies multiple times in theaters, right? Like I was 15 years old at the time. It was yeah. an effort to like actually go to the movie theater. So to see something multiple Definitely. times, Hey, I really wanted to see this. And mm -hmm. I just haven't felt that with Tenet. Um, nowadays when I, you know, when it's so much easier to just go to a movie multiple times with AMC, a list, I'm older now, obviously. Um, so that is, that is the thing for me. I, I don't know that. And maybe it's because, right, it's just a straightforward spy thriller. Straightforward being <laughs> perhaps, you know, uh, obtuse term. Forward. But uh, <laughs> but you, you know what I mean. It's not trying to be anything more than, sure. like, like I said. Uh, maybe, There's no deep theme to unpack in the movie. Right. Maybe the downside of that is that it just doesn't have that rewatch value or that, like, makes me want to keep coming back. But sure. you're going to give the different perspective of, yeah. obviously, someone who did want to keep coming back. Obviously, also someone who is a massive Nolan fan, too. Yeah, look, I, I I totally hear like 95% of everything you're saying. I, I think that it does have rewatch value, but in a different way, right? Like like you're talking about comparing rewatch values of things like Inception and you know, e even other movies like Interstellar, et cetera, which I know that you know pe people who listen to the Nolan series will know Interstellar is not one of my favorite films, but I totally understand people why, why people want to rewatch it. I even enjoy rewatching that film now that I've seen it the second time for various reasons. If you care about that, go listen to the series. If you haven't, I really would recommend checking that out. But overall, like I hear what you're saying. And I think that the rewatch value of this film is the same for me as like the rewatch value of like other spy throws of like top tier 007 movies of the best Mission Impossible films. Like that is the rewatch value is like the epic set pieces of the movie are so cool. Like you're talking about the opening scene of the Opera House, which, by the way, I got to see 
in December of last year in front of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. And I joked at the time that that was the best part of the movie for me. And, and it was. And you understand why now. Because there there's just nothing that slaps harder in the year of 2020 than when when the bass drops in, into that opening scene when they start running around the, the opera house. I mean, it's just such an awesome, such an awesome scene. Uh, and so well constructed. And look, I think you're absolutely right. Like this is a movie that Nolan's not trying to get you to take too seriously. I mean, in the first half hour, he tells you literally to not think too much about it. Like the sci- the scientist in Germany, when he, I, I assume it's Germany, I don't actually know where it is, but the scientist, the, like the scientist that he goes and talks to after he gets off of like the, the wind turbine in the middle of the ocean tells him, don't think too much about it. Just feel it. And I think that's exactly what Chris Nolan wants you to do with this yeah. film. And I'm totally fine with that. I, I totally get people's complaints about it. I think that I've thought, I mean, I've thought a lot about this movie and I think some things hold together. Well, I think some things are a little bit of a shrug, right? Like some of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't, maybe it all does tie together, but it's just like, so honestly, it's just so mind bending that it, it's hard to, to tie everything together. And you will have a better experience if you just experience it. Right. It's his most complicated film. I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember if I I know I've said this on one of our podcasts, but I've I have been a proponent in the past of I actually think that although complicated, most of most, if not all of Chris Nolan's movies prior to Tenet don't actually require a second watch, a second watch to understand an inception, maybe like a watch and a half. I don't know. Like that's that would be the the one the one case where you, you I think you could mount a pretty significant argument. But some people like Memento is complicated. Prestige is complicated. Like, sure, those movies are like have interesting twists to them, but you don't need multiple watches to figure those movies out. And I think this one absolutely requires like I, I don't think this movie really clicked on all cylinders for me. And I really felt like I I got some of the more complicated natures of it or, or had the questions that some of sometimes I was asking or trying to poke at uh, answered until the third watch. That was that was that was where it clicked for me. And I feel like my enjoyment maximized of this film. And yes, I have seen the movie five times. I will say that in a different year or in a non COVID 2020 alternative, there's no way I see this movie five times in theaters. Like there's just no way we'd be watching other movies. There'd be other things out in theaters that I'd be interested in seeing in the middle of the summer. It just wouldn't have happened. So I think that that seeing a movie, this movie in particular five times is the nature of, of the year that we've had. And the fact that literally no other, I mean, basically no other movies have come out since Senate come out. And that's the reason why theaters are probably going to close next week, but we can talk more about that later. Um, so, so I think that overall, look, I really enjoyed this film. I think the performances are really good for the most part. And I think that I see all these people saying like, this movie is like a silly movie. Like, I, I don't really know why this, this movie was like made the way it is. It's like, so over the top. I'm like, yeah, that that's literally the point. I think it is transcendently absurd was the phrase that I initially used. Yeah. And that is true. It is. Um, and that is fine and really enjoyable. Some of the set, I mean, some of the set pieces here, I think are best of all time. Nolan. Um, I mean, the, look, the opening opera house scene, one of them. Uh, among several others as well, because those several other ones I think are just so fascinating. And I can't wait to see like whatever documentaries come about, like how this movie was made or how it was put onto the final screen to actually know, like to actually see how they approach doing some of the, like the inverted scenes and things like that, whether they are just really running the, the, like the video in the reverse and putting audio over the top of it or, or what they're doing. Cause it's really cool. I mean, it's just really awesome and comes out of the mind of someone I won't say he's the only person who could ever think up something like this, but he is the only filmmaker who could think of something like this and then get the money for it to be made. And so I think it puts it into like a really special place to have a movie like this made. And I couldn't imagine seeing this film for the first time on Netflix or somewhere like that, where I'm watching on my home TV or, or on my computer. Like, I mean, I have a nice TV, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't beat like 
the second or third largest IMAX screen in the country, which I'm blessed with getting to see movies on and here in Boston. Um, nothing beats that. And is again, another one of the reasons why I've seen this movie five times because I've seen it five times on that screen and it's awesome every single time. So yeah, I, I mean, look, we're going to talk a lot about the nitty gritty details of this thing, but I really enjoy this film in terms of like quality from like a pure filmmaking perspective. I think I can, I hear what you're saying from a, you know, maybe my bottom half Nolan film, but I think my enjoyment of it elevates it uh, beyond that. Cause I think mo most of Nolan's movies, the vast, at least half of them are some of the best made films. I don't know if this is one of the best made films, but I just enjoyed this film so much. And uh, it's ultimately really special to me. I think there's a lot of interesting things about it that uh, maybe not deep themes to unpack, but interesting things about it to, to discuss, which we will get to. So with that, why don't we just go ahead and talk about the thing that is the main character of the film, right? And it's not a, it's not an actor. Uh, it's not a particular specific set piece. It's inversion, Scott. Let's talk about inversion. It's probably the most Nolan-y thing about the film. Simple question to get us started, and then we can go in some different directions here. But does it work? Like, does it work as a hook to get you to like be engaged with this film? I mean, look. Let, let's let's be honest here. This is not something super new that Nolan has invented or anything. To some extent, it's time travel, right? Like, you're you're talking about going back in time, like going going backwards through time, quite literally. I think the the difference that we see here is that about someone going back in time while everyone else is moving forward in time, right? And that that kind of image is uh, is something that we haven't necessarily seen before. Um, and, and so, like, I think calling it inversion is maybe like, I mean, yes, that's what they call it in the movie, but maybe that's trying to dress it up to sound more fancy than it actually is, right? I think on a base level, it, it's easy to understand, like, that after he goes through the turnstile thing, right? He's going back in time. Like, that's very obvious. He's going against the grain in the car chase and all of that. Um, but there are definitely, there is definitely complexity to it. Like, that scene in particular, before he goes back in time, right, in the turnstile, and obviously we're getting into spoilers, like, there's no way to avoid it with this movie. But when he is, like, on the other side of the glass from Kenneth Branagh's character, um, I was very confused the first time I saw that scene about what exactly was going on there. Um, because you're talking about like, I mean, and I still don't know that I have a full concept for it, but you, you know, he's on, he's in one, like, like he's going backwards. John David Washington is for, I don't know, but they're like, it's like they're interacting with each other. Also the sound mixing is like, we haven't talked about this yet, but the sound mixing is not great at times. Um, and in that scene in particular, because there's like this weird effect of like, he's talking backwards um, but also you're hearing it forwards. Like it, it, there were things that Kenneth Branagh was saying that got really garbled for me. Uh, the first time I saw it, the second time I knew the scene was coming. So I paid more attention to it. Like I, I more or less understood, you know, you have to, you have to realize that you actually aren't supposed to understand what half yeah. of the things being said until he go until Kenneth Branagh goes through the turnstile. Right. And, and yeah. ultimately I think that middle section ended up being my favorite part of the film, right. Where he is, you know, basically tracing back in time a lot of the events that we have already seen going forward. Yeah. Um, the car chase, going back to the whatever it's called at the uh, airport. Um, the Freeport. The Freeport, yeah. Uh, at the at the airport with, you know, the fight where he fights and ends up fighting himself. Like, all that I think is awesome. Um, but, yeah, I, I so, I mean, I, th I think the concept works, right? Like, again, we haven't necessarily seen anything like this before in, in the sense that we haven't seen, like, we're time-traveling we're going back in time while everything else is going forward. And and obviously that we see that literally played out at the end. Uh, I mean, in the car chase, but also at the very end, right. When like the, 
soldiers are fighting e- each yeah. other and some of them are moving 12, forward, yep. some of them are moving backwards yeah i mean and that's just like mind-blowing to watch that um yeah. so that aspect of it works um i think other times maybe it is just needlessly complicated a little bit uh you know uh, about when certain characters like what timeline certain characters are in uh like when they are moving forward, when they are moving backwards, I think sometimes it's easy to get lost. I think the fate of Robert Pattinson's character, um, probably is, the most complex of them all. Yes. Is, is a little confusing, right? Because at the end, you basically have to accept that he has gone back in time, like multiple times, many times to save the protagonist in different way. And he is like at, at different places at the same time. Yeah. I, you know, at the exact same time, yeah. basically, because he has he's to, at the opera house and at different he's at, points. Yeah. He's at, and he's because, in, yeah. because that's the thing. He starts going back in time and you think, Oh, he's going all the way back to the opera house. And then, then that's not what happens. Of course. Right. He ends up in a totally different place at the same time. All of this stuff is going on at the opera house. Yeah. Um, and so Pattinson has to be in both places. Right. And he's, at, and he's I, actually in three places, which is the funniest part of yeah. all. <laughs> um, yeah. Because he saves him from, yeah. The guy who's about to kill him. He's in the hypercenter and he's outside the hypercenter and he's at the opera house all at the same time. So it gets a little cluttered at times, but for the most part, like, look, this is, it's a total Nolan thing to do, right? Like he's played with time the, the, um, for, for the entirety of his career. I feel like this is almost like the culmination of all of that stuff that he's done with time, right? Like maybe he's been wanting to do this, um, you know, since he since he started messing with time in his movies, and yeah, I was like, it felt like he rewatched Memento, and he's like, "What if I take this further?" Right, because that is yeah. kind of the similar idea to what the most similar film, yeah, the most similar idea in one of his films to what's going on here. Except again, it is in Memento. You have a guy who is like, or you you have the story being told backwards, but everyone is moving forward. Yes. Like time yeah. is playing out in a linear fashion, yeah. but here. That is not always the case. Yeah, you can't get on the plane unless you stop thinking about time linearly. So right. That's that's the key takeaway from this movie. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's the that that is one thing though that I think like because what is it? They have to wear an, a mask, right? They have to wear an oxygen mask when yeah. they are going backwards. That, and that is one thing that is helpful. It's just at times like they were not wearing the mask, and I had to remember. Wait a minute, how did they get back to the? Because you have to remember, right? When he goes back to the Freeport, he then switches back again to going like it, forward. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Well, after he fights himself and all of that. Um, so it's there is a lot of, you know, mental gymnastics going on. And Definitely. I wonder if some of this is why the movie hasn't done as well. I mean, obviously, it's not open in New York and L.A., but I wonder if like now, like movies are escapism, right? Like that is one of the, the primary purposes for movies. And especially now in 2020 with COVID, we need escapism. And I think people when thinking about the movies that they want to go see right now in theaters, something that is going to require you to like literally hear and understand every single line of dialogue and focus on every single line of dialogue. Cause you do like, frankly, you do with tenant. Um, maybe isn't the kind of thing that people are like super hyped up about. I don't know. I just think that people didn't want to go out to the theaters period. And that that's yeah. probably what contributed to it. But yeah, I mean, that, that that's, that's what I think. I, I think honestly, Scott, like this film could be just be like so overwhelming in terms of like the mental gymnastics you have to go through to use your words that maybe people didn't go see it. But if you're talking about movies being escapism, I mean, this feels like the ultimate escapism to me. To uh, some extent. Yeah. Yeah. 
in terms of. But I, I just mean like a turn off your brain, like Indiana Jones, something like that, where it's just, you know, yeah. a fun ride or whatever. Not, again, not this where you have to work really hard to understand what's going on. Yeah. I mean, my thought process is maybe it, maybe it works better as escapism because you do have to like completely take your mind off of everything in the real world to focus on the film. But I also see the point you're yeah. making. I, I do see yeah. the point you're making too. And, and I guess to give my thoughts on this topic, like it, it works for me, right? Like it's definitely difficult and, and maybe overly so. Sometimes I, I I will concede that, but I think overall, after a couple of watches, I really felt like I had my head properly wrapped around it. And I think there's a lot of little details that you're talking about with the masks and when you need to have the mask on, when you don't need to have the mask on, things like that, that take a little bit of time to really wrap your head around. I mean, it seems really basic and it's a good indicator. I mean, the score also works to help you out in those moments too, because when, when you are inverted, Generally speaking, Gorenson's score sounds more ethereal and different, especially in the final scene where you have both of them attacking Stosk 12 at the same time, uh, the temporal pincer move, as it was as it was called in the film. But I, I think overall, I, I think the movie tries to, tries to do a lot to help you out. I don't also I don't always think that the movie <laughs> gets you all the way there necessarily, but uh, I do think that it, it does help out quite a bit. And for me, this is a really interesting hook. You're right, like. It is a version of time travel, ultimately. But when we say time, when you think time travel, you think something like out of Interstellar, right? Where he's literally hopping yeah, yeah. 70 years uh, in time or something like that, which, of course, is all explained by science and whatnot. But but yeah, Avengers Endgame, too. Exactly. I mean, that movie got of the of the main criticisms of that movie got. I feel like its use of time travel was was the one people like to poke at the most, which, hey, whatever. I'm That's not. And again, Interstellar is another example, right? Like of something we there's there's an idea there that it also plays out here, like that, like somebody being in two places, like at the same time, right? Because like that's kind of how McConaughey's character he ends up he's yeah. in the bookshelf, but he's also there with his kids. Like, there, so there there's stuff that yeah. he's been building up towards. I think is the totally point he's trying to make like he's been he's been playing with uh, these ideas in his early. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely agree. And I, I think that there there's a but I think when you say time travel people instantly think of me included, right? Very specific things. And yeah. inversion is not what you think of. And yeah. I think it is a really interesting concept realized. I'm, I'm sure that's why this film is so expensive uh, to make because I'm sure there's so many effects happening. Like I said, can't wait to see the documentaries on how a lot of these things were shot or or put together or ultimately, you know, rendered on the screen. And look, like I'm hooked, right? Like that is that the hook got me. The performances are all really good too, which we'll talk about here in a second. But the hook at, at its core, right? This movie is it isn't a Chris Nolan film without a good without a good some sort of time or space themed hook and, and, it, and it delivered on that for me. So there yeah. is that. But we've been referencing at least the score briefly here from Ludwig Gorenson, uh, Ludwig Gorenson, sorry. And uh, but I also want to mention that and, and, you know, some of the other technical aspects that we often talk about, or at least we talked about extensively on the Nolan series here, because Hoyt von Hoytema was the returning cinematographer, which is, I believe, who he's been using since uh the dark knight rises if i'm mistaken if i'm not mistaken i think that of these that movies right, yeah. in the last stretch here because uh, when wally fister started decided he wanted to direct a movie which he really just sort of stuck to the cinematography it's an absolute um, dumpster fire yeah <laughs> yeah we won't we won't mention that movie on the podcast uh but yeah like i, I he's been using hoyt von hoytema in the run of movies that you were talking about here that are your favorite ones uh and i think that he comes up with something really fascinating whether you contribute that entirely to the cinematography is of course another question but scott what did you think of the technical aspects of this we've talked obviously about the hook but the score the cinematography production design etc what do you make of it yeah i mean it's it's fantastic uh, i think for the most part i you mentioned production design there. I don't know that there's anything like super in the production design category that gets me like super excited. Like I think most of the like, you don't um, like the sailboats. 
the elevated sailboats or the yacht? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I just feel like a lot of it is like very like gray, sterile, like neutral tones and stuff like that, which, you know, it <laughs> that's Russia for you. Yeah, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, the score is really good. I mean, you could be fooled into thinking this was Hans Zimmer again, right? Because I, I feel like it has that same very like pulsating, heavy, propulsive thing yeah. going on. Um, but also you can see how, you know, it, it is in tune with what Ludwig Gordonson has done and like Panther and the Mandalorian and, you know, other stuff that he has done. I mean, what the guy is, is what now he's like, I think he just needs a Tony to win the EGOT. Uh, yep. So he's already there and he's pretty young too. Like, I think maybe he's in his thirties even. Um, yeah. He's like Ryan Coogler's age. I think. Yeah. Um, so. Cause he did uh, the Creed movies and. Yeah, he did. Yeah, station. Yeah, he's done yeah. Coogler stuff, but. Uh, so I think he's a great choice for Nolan, right, to fill in. Obviously, Hans Zimmer. I mean, I don't know if you went to Hans Zimmer first or or what, but he's a great replacement to get the same sort of sound that you get from Nolan's movies. Um, the sound mixing is not the best, as I mentioned. I, I think and the, heard, if you want to be specific, it's the sound editing that's not very good. The mixing is probably fine, but the editing is is where it goes awry, goes awry. Well, but yeah, yeah, maybe I, I don't know. I mean, you, you might know better than I. But it's it's a sense. It's a case of like sometimes you have trouble hearing the dialogue because yes. of the music, um, which to me in my brain that's mixing. But maybe it's actually. I don't know. But who knows? I don't know what I'm talking about. Thank, thankfully, the Oscars have become sensible now, and they just call it sound yeah. design. So, but I've heard this has been a problem before. Like I heard that this same problem happened in Interstellar, which I don't know because I never saw that in theaters, obviously. Yeah. And now seeing it on you know computer TV, whatever. I think the problem is is fine. Maybe it's bad theater speakers or something, right? But I mean, I feel like that would be such a Nolan move, right? To make this movie and be like, oh, there are no theater speakers out there which are fit to yeah. perfectly capture the sound. If you, if you don't see this in like Dolby Atmos or something like if you, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you <laughs> yeah. have to go to like one of five theaters in the country, right? To actually get the full experience. But no. I, I have heard that that the mic, that for some, for whatever reason, and I think this speaks to your point, the 35 millimeter version of this movie which is probably the version we all saw is not as the sound is not as clear as the 70 millimeter yeah. version. I don't know why, cause I don't know why the millimeter of the film would matter for the sound, but that is what I've heard. Yeah, no. And I mean, that was the thing I knew it, it just wasn't my theater because like I was reading people saying it all over the place and that's yeah. not nothing, right? Like that, that is a, a criticism of the film for sure. Because of what I mentioned, right? You have to hear every single di- line of dialogue to understand this thing. Um, and so you know, I, I think that is that is definitely one area where the rewatch benefits you because you basically know when certain parts of the film are coming. Like I said, I, I knew what uh, the second time I went back, I knew like the first everything with the last 45 minutes. And I knew the parts where I like, oh, I really need to zone in on this this time to understand what is going on here because I didn't really get this the first time. And it's obviously really important. So I think with that knowledge, you might have more success on, on a rewatch. But on a first watch, I think you're you're absolutely going to have trouble soaking everything up um and yes and, and yeah and so so i guess that's what i have to say about the technical stuff obviously i've spoken about the action scenes i think they're mind-blowing again stuff we've never seen before um especially in those yeah inverted- we'll, we'll talk about that actions don't worry yeah 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 look look the score here it, it's look there's like still six months of movies to no no okay not not quite six like four months of movies left to come out um, but this, I mean, this, this score is great. I, I think right now it probably is one of the front runner, probably one of the front runners for the Oscar, uh, if that Academy Award ceremony does happen, um, in April as it is currently planned. And like I said, kind of the moment where I knew in the, in the movie where I was like, all right, 
even if this isn't top tier Nolan, I'm still going to enjoy this film is that opening seed when, when the Gorenson score really kicks in uh, before they start to actually breach the opera house. And cause it kicks in and you're just like, all right, you're, you're totally in at that point. Right. If you're, if you're here for some action, then you know, you're going to get it when that score starts. And I think that that is a recurring theme that as epic and amazing and, and kind of visually stunning as a lot of these action set pieces are, whether there's maybe more traditional ones, I'll put that in quotation marks, like the opening scene or crazy out there ones like the finale of the film. You always like the score always feels like it complements it and elevates it to the next level. And I think that's something that's really special, right? Like something that I haven't really, I mean, the scores have often been very good in my opinion from Nolan movies, but I, I think rarely have I watched a film with the exception of maybe the dark Knight, where I'm like the score of this just elevates even some of the best scenes already in the film. And I think that that is something that's, that's really remarkable this and, and why I think that this score maybe stands above some of even the other ones. Is this something that I would, that I would re-listen to just outside the context of the film? Probably not as much as something like the dark Knight or even interstellars, which I think is a fantastic score from Zimmer. Um, but for the film itself and, and what, and it's, Again, I think it maybe depends on how you define like the ethos of what makes something a good score, whether it's just like independent listening value or whether it really complements the movie. I think that this one may be more than, even more so than some of those other top Nolan uh, <laughs> film scores is up there for me. It's really special. The, the cinematography here is really great. Again, sometimes I think it's hard to distinguish between whether something is, is just actually like, you know, real stunts and what is actually captured by the cinematography versus what is visual effects. But I think that either way, regardless of how you describe it, the idea of the vision being realized visually on the screen here is again, special, something that, you know, Dunkirk interstellar, all these movies, the most recent Nolan films have done. And this time it just feels like it's maybe even elevated to the next level just because of the visual, um, or, you know, the, the visionary nature of some of these ideas of like, can we shoot a scene where, there are people simultaneously flowing forward and backward in time and make it look like this sort of like wave of action happening. Um, and they, and they managed to do it. Right. So I don't, again, I think it depends on maybe how you define what is like good cinematography, but that vision, that full package of visual realization on the screen, really special stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on from that, I think now is probably time to talk about that cast. And, you know, I mentioned for, you know, kind of the form, I guess, biggest members of the cast, if that for the lack of a better term there, uh, at the start, that being John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Kenneth Branagh, and Elizabeth Debicki. So why don't we start with the protagonist? And I, and I do want to ask, you know, why is this character called the protagonist? But before we get to that, Scott, John David Washington, he was cast on the back of his role in Black Klansman. I mean, let's just be really frank about it. Uh, that performance is what caught the eye of Christopher Nolan. He's like, you know what? You could be the protagonist in my epic spy thriller. Scott, did John David Washington live up to that role for you? He did. Um, I, absolutely. I think his performance is really strong. I think he elevates the character. Uh, I, I don't think the character, I, I think it's the character wouldn't be as in, interesting on the page, but I think with this performance and his genuine movie star charisma, like he has the gene that his dad has, like there's no denying it after watching this movie. Um, He's able to elevate that that character into something, I mean, not super substantive, but like I was, you know, rooting for him basically through, through the film. I, like he was yeah. at, at the very least, he was the protagonist. Um, he was. Which, um, which is good, right? I, I think that's a sign of a great actor, right? When you can take maybe something somewhat thinly written and, uh, and you know, turn it into a full bodied character more or less. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't have, 
too much of too much bad to say about him. I think he has a lot of swag, which you want from like a, a spy. I think like he has some little one-liners, which like maybe aren't like super funny or anything like that, but like he, he keeps it like a little fresh, like in the movie, right? Like it's not like just so super serious the whole time. Um, yeah. And which, well, which it's, it's the most humor you could expect from a Christopher Nolan. Probably it's just, he's like more like swag jokes than funny jokes. I don't think the guy has humor in him at all. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I'm trying to think of any examples, but it's been a while since I've seen the film. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the examples would be like, how would you like to die? And he says old. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, so just little. just little like sort of witticisms like that, I think. Yeah. Um, they add something to the film um, and his performance as a whole. I mean, I think the whole cast really stood out to me um, for for someone in Nolan who is not necessarily known as being an actor's director, I, I think. I, I don't think he, uh, I mean, like, he has has he never ever had a performance nominated for an Oscar in any of his films? Oh, Heath Ledger, obviously. Won. I was gonna say, yeah, I won't say the obvious one, but we'll keep going. <laughs> yeah, but beyond that, I'm not sure if he has. But um look, the main character of his films, which is why we didn't talk about the cast first, is the Nolan aspects of the movie. So I totally yeah. agree. I totally agree. Right, exactly. Saying. Christopher yeah. Nolan, the star of every Christopher Nolan film is Christopher, Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Um, and and so I appreciate it here that I thought on on the whole, the performances were better than in your average Christopher Nolan film and, and yeah. were more of a highlight of the film than in your average Christopher Did McConaughey get nominated for Interstellar? No. Probably probably not. Should um, have. Yeah. I, I know. How, yes. Yes. So we can we can visit it at the end of this discussion where where this fits in other rankings because I know you have a, a slight update to make from our Nolan series. But yeah, look, the John David Washington for me, the first time I watched it, I was like, you know, I, I've heard there's I've heard the criticisms about him being kind of a cold blank slate type of character. And I think those are fair. I think those are those are fair things to say. But on the rewatches, I think what I what I've appreciated more and what I've definitely realized about the character, and I think I realized this the first time too, is that like that's kind of the point, right? Like, like there's all these other movies that have come out in the last couple of years where Scott, we've talked about like anyone can wear the mask or whatever. And and to an extent, I think the protagonist is supposed to be, you know, the name of the character and the specificity of the character just isn't that important, right? Uh, it's not critical to the movie, which is a bold move to make for like, let's be very honest that that doesn't necessarily spell a recipe for like, Oh, I'm going to really care about this character when you're making this sort of like blank, uh, you know, kind of background list character. Cause that is true. Like, like, like we don't know anything about this guy at all. Um, really, except that he worked for the CIA before the movie started. And I think that that is a really bold choice from Nolan and, and maybe even speaks to the point you're making where he, there's no one character that's ever really going to stand out uh, in a Nolan movie because he just simply doesn't care about that kind of stuff. But John, I, I agree. John David Washington elevates that, you know, I'll be curious to see where he goes next from here. Cause I think general critical consensus has not been the hottest on this performance. I don't think, but really? it really, yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. it's very, I mean, if it, it's not necessarily negative, but it's lukewarm. I think, and I think a lot of that goes down to the character, not the performance. Because I agree, I think he elevates the role. I think he add he has this sort of like I think swag, charisma, however you want wittiness about him that you need from your spy movie. And I, again, I think he's always trying to subtly remind you not to take the movie too seriously, right? And I think that there's another character that does that more, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, I think that the, he's there and he and he's playing a very specific role and he's doing it really well. You know, whether that role does him favors in terms of like character acting or whatever, however you want to describe that. And like, you know, gaining prestige for yourself. I don't know that the character necessarily does that. Not many, frankly, not many spy movie characters do that with the exception of one or two and James Bond and Ethan Hunt maybe. But overall, I think that 
it's a really strong performance in ways that you don't necessarily think about or expect. And you're like, when you think about like what makes a strong character or a strong role, Scott. So before we move on to some of the supporting cast, I do want to ask what your thoughts are on this. Like this film heavily utilizes the word protagonist, not only to describe John David Washington, but like forward moving protagonists and, and, inverted antagonists and things like that. And, and do you think there's anything there at all in, in that? I mean, obviously the most obvious example is John David Washington's character, but it's used kind of liberally. I've noticed over my rewatches quite liberally throughout the movie to describe all sorts of other characters in this movie. Yeah. They keep using it, particularly at the end when he's talking with uh, the Indian woman. I can't remember her name, but Priya. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know Scott. Like I, I, I honestly <laughs> just kind of have to throw up my hands at this. Yeah. Um, Maybe this is one area of the movie where he like wanted you to take something away from it. I, I mean, I kind of think not. Like, I don't really know what sort of deeper meaning you could possibly get out of like, you know, just treat, calling someone the protagonist, unless there's some sort of commentary on storytelling, uh, you know, that is in the film, but which I don't really think that there is. Um, but but I don't know. Like at the end of the day, it's not even something that I really thought about and, until you just you know asked me about it. Now, to be honest with you, um, and I don't know uh, why Nolan chose to do this. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could say something more intelligent, but I just kind of have to throw my hands up um, because it is what it is. I mean, obviously, he doesn't want yeah, you no. back. He doesn't want you to know about his background, right? Um, because that is a big reveal at the end of the movie, right? That that he is the guy who created Tenet, basically. Um, but and, in the future, but yes. Yes, yes. Um, but he doesn't want you to know anything about that. So like maybe not giving him a nap. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really just barking up the wrong tree yeah, now. Yeah, no, I mean, the film goes out of its way to never reveal a character's name uh, pretty aggressively. But ironically, after my first viewing, I hadn't really... Like I was thinking about the movie, I was like, "Oh, what's the what's the character's name?" And I realized I didn't. It didn't really click with me that he. Oh, like we don't know his name. He never says yeah. his name in the movie, so it doesn't actually. Some people were really. I was reading online. Some people were really annoyed that the character didn't have a name. Some people were taking shots at Nolan, saying that like, "Oh, he's just trying to be this like really woke storyteller." Like, look, I have a black protagonist. I flipped the script on my movie. I don't think he's doing that. No. I mean, it's like a really, uh, yeah, really nuclear take there on, on, on probably on on the casting of John David Washington, um, and saying Chris Nolan's trying to make some critique about like protagonists and movies. Uh, I don't really see him doing that there. I don't think he's interested in doing that kind of stuff. But uh, for, for me, I think it, again, I think it speaks less to the point of doesn't want you to know his background, although he certainly goes out of his way to make sure he goes on the background. But again, I think just saying, you know, who this character is doesn't, doesn't matter. And I don't think there's anything necessarily deeper to that other than the fact that like, you know, in that conversation with Priya that you're talking about, he said, you know, she goes to him, do you really think you're the only protagonist who can save the world? And he's like, no, but I can save the world. I'm here. And so I think that if, if you are to point to something that's even like surface level, a little deeper than just this sort of discussion we're having, it's that Chris Nolan is trying to say, you know, it's not specificity in who saves the world here isn't important. Um, so speaking to that point, although less, I think less, done less well than in other films like into the spider verse or something else that we've talked about, but this idea that anyone can, can save the world, you know, if you find yourself in the right place at the right time. Yeah. I mean, that, that probably is what it is. I mean, I will say, despite not knowing, not really understanding it, it didn't super annoy me. I mean, it's, it's pretentious, I think uh, to, to some, yeah. on some level, but there's some of that in just about every novel. 
Yeah, I mean, it adds a little. I think it also does kind of go towards the swagger, so to speak, of the character yeah. overall. Just like calling himself the protagonist over the course of the movie mm-hmm. is kind of kind of funny. Um, but moving on from that, there's you know three other main members of the supporting cast, and there's a longer list as well uh, that we could go through if you do want to go that direction. I'm totally fine if you do. But the other three main members here: Robert Pattinson as Neil, Elizabeth Debicki as Cat, and Kenneth Branagh as Andre Sator. Scott, where do you want to go first? So I mean. Yeah, let's talk about Robert Pattinson first, just because he's probably my least favorite out of the ensemble, not because I think he gave a bad performance or anything. I just think that his character, his character, like, takes some interesting twists, as we've mentioned down the last part of the movie, as you learn more about him. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you know, it it is a good performance, I think, because to some extent, he has to keep, you know, his secrets buried he has to like pretend like he doesn't know things that he actually knows. Like he's he's playing yeah. uh, the protagonist a little bit to some extent, and so he's playing us as the audience too by making him, you know, making us think that, um, you know, he's he's one thing or that he doesn't know something or that he knows something when you know he actually has already been back through this timeline or whatever, um, you know, w- once or twice, and so he actually does know things that are going to happen. Um, and that is why there are, but there are moments too, where you're like, if you actually stop to think about it, you might be like, wait a minute, how, like, why does he know this? How does he know this? Whatever. Um, so it's probably, it probably is a more difficult performance that I, than I'm giving him credit for. I don't know. It just came off as a tad bland to me, um, than the other three performances. Yeah. Interesting points. He's got a lot of charisma. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I was gonna say is I think he he has to use the, the you know his his roguish British charm here uh, to kind of skate over these areas where he's clearly not telling everything that he knows and, and that becomes very clear later on in the film of course uh, but also this idea of like he's just trying to move past things that you know John David Washington's character might have questions about that he only half answers you know obviously the stuff in the Oslo airport is a big one where you know he asks him who is it and he's just like eh, I took care of him don't worry about it. Um, and, and moves on like really, really kind of sketchy answers that yeah. ultimately get brushed over because there's just a lot of stuff happening uh, in the movie. But I think on, on the rewatch, and maybe you appreciated this when you were getting to rewatch sort of the beginning of the film and the second time you saw it, is that I think you see the holes in that right a little bit earlier on uh, overall, and you see where that's being employed. And so as I've rewatched this movie multiple times. I think Robert Pattinson's performance has become one of my favorite ones uh, actually in the film. And I think a lot of that is that you're talking about this movie doesn't have a lot of heart in it relative to some of the more recent Nolan films. In fact, I'd argue even any of those last three that you mentioned at the beginning, I think even the dark Knight rises has a ton of heart in it uh, to go along with interstellar and Dunkirk. (laughs) Uh, I mean, my, everyone knows you listen to that. My criticism about interstellar is that it, it kind of feigns plot for, for, for heart. It has too much heart. Yeah, yeah, it it overhearted the plot a little little bit in Interstellar. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. But in this one, I think on the rewatch (laughs) I found is that because because at the end of the movie, again, we've we've gone we've blown way past spoilers here. But like you find out that that he and the protagonist have had a, you know, years long relationship and been, you know, kind of partners in this in this whole mission, this this tenant thing for years and years and it's the like this at the end of the movie is the end of that friendship because we know that his character is going to die and so it's really interesting i think uh to know that going back into the movie which you didn't the second time you watched it you had not yet seen the end so you did not know that that was going to happen but i think that that a lot of heart gets added 
injected into the movie, relatively speaking here, a lot of heart for the movie gets injected into it when you understand that Robert Pattinson goes into every single scene in the movie with this really strong connection to the protagonist already. But how does he play that? How does he play that off? Um, like it's their meeting for the first time or like, you know, they're just getting to know each other and they don't and they don't quite yet trust each other completely. And I think there's actually huge nuances and dimensions to Pattinson's performance here um, that make it one of my favorites. And again, I, I think you have you, you don't get that until, you know, the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, that you're that is why maybe I'm reacting the way that I I mean, yeah. what you're saying makes sense. Um, but of course, right. I, I didn't get to the end the first time. And so exactly. Yeah. I didn't yeah. have the benefit of that, even on my second quote unquote watch. Um, so, yep. yeah, maybe on a third watch, I would see some stuff there. I'm definitely uh, not ruling that out. But yeah, I mean, I know some people were saying like at the end of the movie, when they kind of like have their last moment together or whatever they like, that was that was when they felt something. Again, maybe on a rewatch, but it, for me, it was a different character who like provided the semblance of heart that is in this movie. Sure. Yeah. I, and I, I think I'd agree with those people who are, who are saying that the proto heart, but I'd also agree with what, what you're going to say. So why don't we just go ahead and, and pivot that direction? Because uh, I assume you're going to be talking about Elizabeth Debicki here. So what did you think of Elizabeth Debicki? I know just to preface it and, you know, you kind of mentioned it, that people talking about how, hey, this movie doesn't have a lot of heart in the reviews. And I think probably pointing a lot of fingers at how, you know, the heart of, of this movie, so to speak, should ride in this in this sort of this motherly this mother son relationship that exists for Elizabeth Debicki's character, where you know she cares a lot about her son and is trying to save her son, um, but that doesn't necessarily deliver for some of those people who uh, critics that you were talking about earlier. Scott, does it deliver more for you than it did for them, or are you about on the level with them? Uh, I mean, look, I can't believe we've gone this long without me getting to talk about Elizabeth Debicki, but uh, right. I'll, I'll give us twenty minutes. I'll put a timer on it now. You can go. <laughs> you can go off. I mean, you talk about getting literally everything out of a character. I think that's exactly what she does here. Again, same situation for me as John David Washington, where like a lesser actress, maybe this would have just been another Nolan female character, right? Because this was a common theme during our Nolan series is that he doesn't write very good female characters. I'm not sure he wrote a very good one in this movie, but Elizabeth Debicki makes it into a above average one by Nolan's standards uh, because she is so fantastic. Um, and I think that, so th there, there is like a tad bit of fridging going on. I feel like with the fact that her character is getting like abused by, um, by her husband, right. By Kenneth Branagh. And that is kind of what motivates um, the protagonist to do a lot of why he does, even though there's not really like a romance or anything going on between them. Like there's a clear connection between the two of them. And he clearly is willing to go as far as he is um, because, you know, not just for um, not just to save the world or, you know, to, to accomplish his mission, but also to help to save Kat. Um, and her son. Don't forget her right. son. And yeah, to, allow her, to allow her to survive and to be with her son. And so uh, I think that uh, she is able to actually get some emotion out of that because she is so, so great. Right. And, and, and so, so, I mean, that part of it though, the, the fridging part of it is like not the greatest, it's not like glaring or anything like that. Um, but I think that it is solved a little bit by giving her a, a something to do right at the end of the operation. Right. She, they kind of have to come together as a team in the end. Um, and she has to, you know, be on the boat with, with Andre. She ultimately ends up killing him. Right. That's, that is my favorite scene in the movie. Actually, my favorite moment is, of course, when he lets her, you know, six foot three 
figure like unlock the car door so that she could like give him the briefcase or whatever. Um, not, of course, not, not quite, but yeah, I know what you're talking okay. about. Okay. Again, I haven't seen it five times. So, um, but it's, I, also been a, it's also been like a month since you've seen it too. So it's it's not it has. That is true. Um, but the point is, not many other actresses would have been able to uh, to reach that car lock. Um, and so I'm glad that Christopher yes. Nolan, I mean, look, he does understand, I'll give him credit, he does understand the magic of cinema, which is the just spectacular tallness of Elizabeth Debicki. But um, so I'll credit him for that. Uh, but then the best scene, like I said, for me is right when she, the, the, her final confrontation with Andre. And I wish I could, again, I, I probably should have gone and seen this again before he talked about it, but it is what it is. Um, but I wish I could remember some of the lines that she has, like right before she kills him. But um, yeah. they were, it's, they were, it's, fire- a, it's a good monologue. It's a they very good monologue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, so again, I, I, I don't know if this would have been a strong character if it was being played by someone else. Um, but I think that I did really care about the character by the time the end of the film came around, certainly more than any other character. And maybe some of that is just because I like Elizabeth Vicky as an actress, as you can tell. Um, we both stand so, it's fine. again she she takes this character much further than uh is on the page and if there is the, the heart that i was able to find in this movie which definitely is down on the level of you know those last two films but it all for me came from this character her relationship with her son her relationship between her and the protagonist even um i think that uh i wanted her to to be Fine. I, I was most concerned about her well-being. Let me put it that way. Over the course of the movie, and so I'm glad that you know, it turned out all right. And her diving off the boat was a nice, like, circuitous moment. Yeah, that that is a real nice circuitous moment. And that, that with any with any puzzly type movie, when you see the all the puzzle pieces come together, yeah, it's nice. It's it's nice because and you look, can see where it's going. Right when she gets on the boat, it's like, oh, I get it now. She was the person that she saw diving off the boat. Yeah. Totally. And and look at. Unlike maybe in some other in other Nolan movies, he's not trying to obfuscate any points here with you. He's not trying to hide uh, in anything. But he gave you the he gave you the breadcrumb trail earlier on, and he it does come full circle for it. Yeah, I mean to be fair, I don't think he tries to obfuscate things in any of his movies, and I think that's where people have a problem, right? Is that there is so much exposition a lot of the time that in Inception yeah. he has an entire character whose basically only purpose is to provide exposition here. But look that ultimately does not bother me that much because like to me i'm just like would you rather he not explained any of this stuff <laughs> i don't think so like i don't think you want that at all people so like just yeah. get up and like pay attention um yeah. I, I i don't have as big of a problem with that because of the concepts that he wants to deal with in his movies i think necessarily they have a learning curve and Things need to be explained, and so I I Look, didn't. God, find people it. people would prefer the Aquaman voiceover than than the exposition from Joseph Gordon Levitt or you know, whoever you want to point to. I guess I I mean the problem for me right is when it's like in Inception right when it's like two thirds into the movie and she's still having to explain stuff. Now that at, at that point I'm like eh, shouldn't we understand everything that's going on here? But when it's like no we can go a layer deeper and blah blah blah. blah. I mean. Look, I really like Inception. I, I'm probably being too hard on it, but uh, that is just an example of I think where if if there's a place where the exposition doesn't work, it's there. But it didn't bother me in this movie, to be honest. Yeah, and Elizabeth Debicki here, I agree, gets the most out of this performance. I think this is a to, let's just be honest. This is a mediocre female character uh, that she elevates to whatever level that she ultimately gets this thing to, and I think that 
again, Nolan isn't the best at writing female characters, and I will admit that. I think that you, there's some very silly lines in, in this movie where <laughs> they're in like the shipping container, um, going back going backwards in time to get back to Oslo, and Robert Pattinson's like end of play the world ends no one survives and she's like and my son and i'm just like what is this said it's so unnecessary oh we get it already she likes her son yeah but her tarantino style revenge plot is, oh, yeah. is the the highlight of it absolutely and and yeah to go to that like i think i think some of the lines she gets at the end of of the movie we, we shouldn't actually say on the podcast because there's some not nice words in them but no they're they're very good it's a very good monologue Getting to take, you know, in in full sort of like full wit style that I think Chris Nolan is, is better known for than his humor, of course, is turning a lot of the words that Kenneth Branagh's character had said earlier in the movie to her, like calling her vengeful, whatever she la- like. I, she he only sees despair, not anger, uh, in her eyes, and turns that completely one eighty on him, uh, delivers it to him, and yes, gets the very satisfying bullet to the chest, and then rolls him right off the the top of the 40 foot yacht hits the guardrails on the way down and lands in the water. And then high mesh Patel's character freaks out. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty funny, but yeah, no, she, I think she's a better character, but this is a better performance character combo than I thought a lot of the reviews give it credit for. But again, I'm biased. I'm a big Nolan stand. And I think there's a lot of parts of this that work for me. Does it add the heart that, you know, again, not to just keep referencing Interstellar, but I think even some of the other Nolan movies too, but especially Interstellar uh, adds in terms of a, a female character specifically. D- Dunkirk does something different, I think, but w- with a female character specifically, no, no, it doesn't. It it doesn't, and, and it never reaches those heights. But I do think overall, uh, there is, this character has more to offer thanks to Elizabeth Debicki, and yes, getting to getting all what seventy five inches out of her frame. Uh, is is an A plus for me, and and look, she was cast on the back of Widows, her 2018 Widows performance, and Scott, it, I don't remember if we reviewed that movie on the podcast. I think we actually maybe didn't, but we certainly talked about it in our top ten of the year episode. Uh, and if you haven't seen Widows and you did see Tenet and you liked Elizabeth Debicki, go watch Widows. It's an absolutely incredible performance. It's ridiculous she didn't get nominated for an Oscar that year. Um, she's gonna anyway, be Princess Di Elizabeth- in the Crown, so get excited for that. Yeah, we'll wait three years to get that probably because they still have like a whole another season to run yeah. right before they even get to that one. But yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely. And, and when that news came out, I immediately next year, like, well, I got to watch The Crown now. <laughs> I got to catch up on it. Since that news came out. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, did you finish watching The Night Manager? Uh, I have a couple more of that. Uh, I think I've watched five episodes. Oh, then you should be near the end of it then. Uh, I think it's only. Six. I think there are seven. I can't remember if there are six or seven. Okay, maybe there are seven. Yeah, no. So yeah, there's plenty of great Elizabeth Debicki stuff out there. If you like what you saw from this character in this movie. But last, we've gone long on the on the characters here. But let's talk about one more, Kenneth Branagh. Scott, you mentioned that you might have some more things to add about this character later on, specifically how it relates to Chris Nolan not wanting you to take this movie too seriously, or this movie not taking itself too seriously, right? So talk more about that. He is like he is the mustache twirling villain. Yeah, in in this movie, honestly, sometimes I could really mistake his accent from this Hercule Poirot one. But go ahead, Scott, go off on Kenneth Branagh because I think you liked this performance, or you at least you appreciated it. Yeah, I think I'm the only one. But um, but <laughs> yes, I like maybe this is just me, right? But I think you would have to be a, an idiot to cast Kenneth Branagh in a movie and give him a Russian As a Russian act. villain. Yeah. And yeah, and not expect that he is just going to eat the scenery in every single like scene that he is in. And that's what he does, right? I guess we've seen this type of thing in a Nolan film before. I mean, like 
Heath Ledger, obviously, you know, is a scenery chewing villain. Uh, but to me, it stands in such a contrast to, you know, again, everything else, the sort of severe tone of the rest of the movie um, that I just feel like this is a Bond villain. Like you, you look at this guy, I mean, Bond, yeah. Bond are known, Bond movies are known for having some of the most over the top villains, you know, odd job, Goldfinger, Jaws, the list is in this, but um I don't. I don't think he. You can. You can seriously cast him in this role without knowing that uh, there's going to be a little bit of a wink, wink to his performance. Um, and and so I appreciated that. I think that this movie needed that shot of like uh, adrenaline. Uh, th- that shot of uh, like peeling back the layers for him to say, um, "Hey, I know exactly how absurd all of this is." Um, yeah. And, everyone, calm down. <laughs> Yeah, that is why I'm putting Kenneth Branagh here as a villain. And, you know, some people, obviously, again, I say I'm the only one who liked it. A lot of reviewers just thought he was awful because he was so over the top. But that's what why I liked why I liked it. And I feel like I feel this way a lot of times, particularly in action movies and spy movies. I'm like, if these movies would just stop taking themselves so seriously, then we could get on with it and have quite a lot of fun, actually. I remember t- talking about this when we talked about Red Sparrow, right? And how the first half of oh, the movie, yeah was like to talk about another spy movie the first yeah, half of the movie brutal. was this really weird where she's going to the seduction school and what it had just the totally wrong tone and then the second half they're like screw it let's just make a really fun goofy spy movie and that's where i think i would have liked tenet even more had it gone further down that road but to me this performance again gave it a shot of uh, absurdity that i think uh a shot of knowing absurdity that I think made made this a little bit livelier than I was expecting uh, after reading some of the reviews. And so even though there wasn't a lot of heart in the film, other than maybe in some of the stuff with Tabicki, I appreciated that aspect of it just to sort of break up the, um, you know, again, the sort of severe tone of it all. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there, I think that there's I, I can you know picture the scenes right that people are talking about like, oh, it's just like so over the top. It's just like when he's confronting her about, mm-hmm. you know, unhooking his harness and he's like wrapped his cufflinks on the belt or whatever. And is essentially just going to, you know, beat beat his wife. And he, he just has this like absurdist, like drawn out sentence of how if he can't if he can't have cat, then no one can. And I can totally see people just like kind of laughing out loud in the theater at that type of line and thinking that they shouldn't be laughing out loud at it. But I, I think that you're kind of supposed to laugh at it, but she didn't even deliver the line, right? It was like, if I can't have you, no one can. Well, it's even, it's even more drawn out than that too. Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, I was, I was expediting it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You you expedited it by about 15 seconds. Cause it really, it really, it really is drawn out and you get the idea. Yes. If you haven't seen the movie. Uh, hopefully you have it if you've listened this deep. But I think, look, it, it's it's a silly performance, frankly. Like it's it's kind of a silly performance, but it's the performance. James that Bond this, films are silly. Yeah. yeah, but it's the performance this film needs. I mean, this film is about going, you know, literally just traveling backwards through time, like li- like literally just just walking backwards in time is is what this movie is about. And this idea that like seagulls flying backwards, car- cars seemingly driving in the opposite direction, someone fighting their inverted self, like like it's silly, guys. He tells you not to take it seriously at the end of the movie, and and sure that's not an excuse for like a bad performance if it's a bad performance. But I don't think it's a bad performance. It's just exactly what Chris Nolan wanted out of the performance. On some level, all spy movies are silly because spies in the real world are like 
spies in are like the spies in John LeCarrie, like the night manager or like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. That yeah. is what spies are like. They are not, you know, James Bond, Atomic Blonde, whatever. Who Ethan just, Hunt. I'm just gunning people down. Yeah, doing these crazy stunts. That's really not how like intelligence goes in the real world. Yeah, would recommend the night manager. I'll, I'll keep I'll keep hitting that hitting that horn uh, for the night man because that's a great one. Made me really sad when when I realized Tom Hiddleston wasn't going to become James Bond. Uh, but anyway, yeah, look, it, it's a good performance. We'll move on from it because we've dwelled on it. We've dwelled on all the performances probably longer than I expected to. But last thing, Scott, I, I think we've really covered a lot of ground here, and I, I just want to give some more time to the action set pieces. There's what like three or you could argue four, yeah, four really big set pieces uh, in the in the movie. The start, the end, of course, the scene where they take the the plutonium 241 in 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 talent and then also the uh, the the Oslo scene. So there's like the big four action sequences. I think I mean, I definitely already given my thoughts about the first scene. Scott, why don't you pick one? I'll pick one and we'll talk about them. But overall praise, I think we're both uh, extremely high on all of the action in this film. Yeah, I mean, I like the Freeport sequence, the Freeport fight sequence between John David Washington and his inverted self, right? Just, just because of the reveal of all of it, right? Like, because we see the fight happen the first time, right? Well, so, I mean, I like the, like, what happened here, you know, look, and this was in the trailer, like, uh, looking at the bullet uh, hole in the glass. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Ooh, uh, I like that. Um, and, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and then, like, the guy, the suited guy just pops out of the turnstile or whatever, and they start fighting. You don't know who he is, like. He's obviously there to screw up their plan. Really, the whole sequence has a has a very like Mission Impossible feel to it, right? Because they have to like run, get in the room before the gas, you know, knocks them out or whatever, and like hold their breath and all of this stuff. And it's very exciting that I I really liked. Um, yeah. But then you know, getting you know getting to see it backwards, heading you know as they're heading back to the the Freeport and all this stuff, and you're realizing, oh crap! Like was he fighting himself or whatever? And then he pops out of the Freeport and. Um, and you realize like why he was bleeding and all of this stuff. Like I, I thought that was a really sweet payoff. Um, and so I think that in the car chase to me, where it's like you I, you literally get to see the scene played out for in, in you know in real time and then going backwards um, with you know new reveals about why certain things happened the first time around with you know you understanding them better. I think that is like him exercising the full potential of like the idea of inversion types of scenes so i appreciated that in the same way i appreciated like the cyclical storytelling of memento yeah i know it's one of those things where, like if you're gonna have a hook to go back to the hook point if you're gonna have a hook you gotta follow through and like fully realize it and the only way that you fully realize a hook like this is if you show scenes forward and backwards uh right and and that and just like just like you said uh there's a really satisfying payoff to that and yeah look look that that fight scene is is on and and that scene in particular and, and the build up to the scene the second time when you're going backwards uh and inverted it's just has this really sweet quality of storytelling which i get which i really get in a lot of nolan nolan films but is probably the one that i point to first and foremost by that is arrival where you maybe i'm just slow about this maybe people probably guessed it earlier on something like that but like there's a there's a point in the cargo containers where he has the mark on his arm when you realize exactly what's going to happen, right? Like, you know, exactly what's about to happen, how they're going to pull everything off and, and how everything starts to tie together. And that moment of realization is just like the most satisfying moment, I think in, in any type of storytelling, right? When you, when it has that sort of organic realization that you're not, some, something hasn't been explained to you, you have realized something and you have, you've connected the dots. Yeah. And, and that is true. But, and I also think there's something to be said for the fact that even when you know of everything that's about to happen, 
it's still really fun to watch it. Like it's like Ocean's Eleven, right? You know they're going to get away with the heist in the end, but the heist is still fun as heck to watch. And so I think that's the sign of good filmmaking, right? When someone can make you invested, even though you know what's coming, more or less. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree. And and then you said the car chase scene as well. I think that you know I've talked about how the score really really works perfectly in that opening sequence. I think the score it works really fantastically in the car chase sequence, especially in the, in the forward when they're actually stealing the plutonium from, you know, from the travel container, how that whole thing is orchestrated and set up and how they do it. Another scene that feels like very mission impossibly, right? Like it, every component of that feels like if you just plucked that out of the movie and you showed that this, this is an impossible, probably not a James Bond movie, but probably a mission impossible movie. And I loved that. It was, really awesome. And the score really, really amplified that scene for me. And again, it reverse as well. But then, yeah, I think the scene that I'd point to now, it's the only one we haven't talked about at more length yet. It is that final scene where Scott, you talk about getting to see this scene a forward and backwards uh, in these two other times, one earlier on, and then one time later on when you get to see that. And this is the scene where if there's such a thing as more fully realized visions, you get to see both simultaneously. You get to see the forward and the backwards of the event simultaneously while a lot of stuff is happening. And, Again, what one thing that I that I really appreciate about this movie, one of the many things I do, I guess to be fair, is that Nolan tries to milk his gimmick for everything that it's worth, and he gives you everything, like not overly so, but like he milks it for everything it's worth. Like he shows you these different different time periods where you get to see the same scenes far and backwards, and then he he follows up even more and gives you more or less time juxtaposed literally right next to each other, and I think that's really awesome, and. and one of the things that I appreciate about that and also the secret, the longer sequence with the car chase scene um, and what's in between there before you do get that next to each other is that even though I didn't get it the first time, even though I didn't get how everything worked or, and had to just kind of accept what I was seeing for some parts of it as, all right, this must make sense. When I rewatched it the second, third, fourth time, I got it, right? Like I understood exactly why everything plays out. But it is like the first time I watched this movie, just to go back to it is like, I didn't really understand Ives's comment you know, when they first meet each other about like, oh, we only took control of this, you know, room a, a few minutes ago, right? I, I, like still, I was still trying to like orient my brain about the notion that like, even though Sator and his men are like gone now, like they've gone back to go still like if they go through the turnstile in a few minutes, Sator is going to pop out of the turnstile again. Because if, if you think about it and, and there's this urgency, like they have to get into the shipping containers before that happens. Uh, and I think that's like, Again, a kind of a funny thing to wrap your head around. It took me, and it took me a couple of watches to do that to really fully appreciate it. And I think that you get that even more so in this sort of like bombastic final scene of the movie, where again, uh, you know, everything's dialed up to eleven in this sort of like almost like warlike sequence as they assault Stask Twelve, um, and then the final payoff, you know, actually down in the hyper center as well um, with Robert Pattinson's character, with Aaron Taylor Johnson's character, and of course John David Washington's character. All right, Scott, uh, we haven't hit two hours yet, so why don't we get out while we can? Uh, well, before we do that, though, let, let's get an up update on our Nolan rankings because you do have a big update to share, I believe, with you know at least your favorite Nolan movie of all. But then I also, of course, want to know where Tenet sits in the rankings. So, Scott, where does it sit in your rankings? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is a big update. I think uh, I kind of predicted it at the time that this was going to happen. But, uh, yeah, maybe the speed at which it happened. But uh, number 11, following. Uh, number 10, The Prestige. Uh, number nine is Insomnia. Number eight is Tenets. Uh, number seven, Inception. Number six, Batman Begins. 
Number five, The Dark Knight Rises. Number four, Dunkirk. Number three, Memento. Number two, The Dark Knight. And my new number one is Interstellar. Again, I, I called my shot at the time. I, I felt like after a first watch, I was so blown away that I couldn't really see a world where this um, wouldn't eventually become my favorite Nolan film. I watched it all the way through. Again, I've watched certain scenes from it many, many times uh, since I have seen the film. Um, and yeah, it's it's absolutely my favorite. I think it's the perfect combination of the intellectual um, you know, rigor that and and you know, imagination that uh, Nolan brings to his films, along with that emotional centerpiece. So, you know, I, again, the fact that Tenet comes in at eighth place might make it sound bad, but I think Nolan's film filmography is is one of the stronger ones among working directors out there. And uh, I'm glad I, I'm happy for you that your favorite director got to deliver a. Mostly satisfying movie because, like, my favorite director came out with a movie last year, wasn't that great? Yeah, we're not talking about that movie ever again. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you even acknowledged that 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 you know it wasn't Rick horrible or anything. It was just it was just so so. Yeah, very very so so aggressively so so. Uh, but yeah, look, gave to give an update on my rankings as well. Following eleven, Insomnia ten, Batman Begins nine. So that tells you right there that this list is really strong because Batman Begins, a movie that I'm pretty sure I gave four and a half stars to, uh, and I don't remember my actual number score, but four and a half stars to on Letterboxd. Number nine, number eight, Memento. So again, number eight's on people's lists. Not bad movies, guys. Not bad movies at all. Uh, number seven, Interstellar. Number six, The Dark Knight Rises. Number five, The Prestige. Number four, Dunkirk. Number three, Tenet. Number two, Inception. Number one, The Dark Knight. So I, I, I will say when I, when I first saw Tenet, the, it was, I think, you know, five, I think on my list. So it was two spots lower down. And then around the third time I watched it, it bumped up to, to number three, just cause you know, and, and I'll say this when I, I'll, I'll say this when, when I do uh, talk, you know, give my score out and I'll maybe talk more about this, but I do think this movie is like, th this is not his third best made film, but it is a really enjoyable and satisfying film. And, you know, I don't even know if the movies Nolan typically makes are like my favorite genre. I really like action movies. I really like spy movies. I do. Uh, Mission Impossible, 007, Mad Max Fury. Like these films are like some of the best, some of my favorite movies of all time. But uh, the fact that Chris Nolan can make a film like that uh, and deliver on it in a mostly satisfying way while still having all the tropes of a Nolan movie is just like amazing to me. And, and it really hit the sweet spot I'm overall. Surprised. And that's how it ended up at number three. I'm surprised Interstellar came in at higher than Memento or Batman Begins for you. Well, no, so, so that's the thing at the time too, Scott, and I, I think it was number seven when I originally made my list and we talked about the end of the episode, but just to, <laughs> to rehash it here, I guess, briefly is that there's this concept of like this, this like, on, again, like on paper, I feel like Interstellar should be, you know, close to where you're talking about here. And for three quarters of the movie, it is right. Like mm -hmm. for three quarters of the movie, it's it's some of Nolan's best, if not uh, his best. The last right. Part is so good. The last part is complete cop out, and it's unfortunate. No. And, and you can go look at my my review of Interstellar is pinned on Letterboxd. You should go read it. It's the movie that I that I maybe parts of me love, like parts of that movie I love the most of Nolan, and parts of me I hate the most of it. Uh, and and, it, and it's really tough, right? Like I, again, I I think it's just a really big story cop out to get this big emotional high note at the end of the movie, uh, and maybe you can't get that without the cop out. I don't know, but uh, it didn't feel intel as intellectually satisfying as as so many of other Nolan's movies are. And I under, I do understand your perspective and I, and I don't think it's wrong. The perspective that you have at all. It's just, I haven't been able to get there um, on, on my, on my side of it. And uh, maybe one day I will, I don't know.
I hope it is, so. a, it is a capital S space movie. And if you like space movies, you're missing out if you're not watching Interstellar. Um, that's that's all there is to say about that, probably. So, Scott, let's wrap up Tenet now. Favorite scene or moment? I think you've already mentioned it, but you get to mention it again now. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, Elizabeth Debicki's kill, getting to kill uh, her husband, um, which I didn't see coming, right? Because it's a little not quite in the plan, but uh, she does it anyway. And you know, her her build up and her monologue in a film that I think where the where the writing is definitely not one of the standout aspects, even though some of Nolan's films are very well written, in my opinion, in particular the Batman films. Um, I think that is one moment where the screenplay does shine. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And it is very satisfying since her job is literally to not kill him. In fact, to make sure he doesn't yeah. die in the scene. And and so to get to, to get to have, you know, basically walk the walk the walk here and not just talk to talk about how much, you know, she despises this person. And, you know, the fact that she gets to be the one who uh, gets to put the bullet in them is certainly very satisfying in this movie. All right. My my favorite scene. It's so hard. Right. And, but I think that just because of how much it hooked me and it still hooks me, you know, five times in is again, the moment where, where the base kicks in and the opening uh, siege scene is just absolutely incredible. Full, full chef's kiss uh, for that, uh, for that moment when they start running around the opera house and the base kicks in. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's going to be one of my favorite scenes of the year. I think when we, when all is said and done, but yeah, there's so much to enjoy and I, I can't fault. Yeah. I, I love the scene you're talking about too. Yeah. And surprisingly, it's my favorite movie of the year so far. I think but, it's a, I think it's in my top five. Um, definitely. Top it, it was it was number two when, when you first watched it, but it might have dropped a little bit now. Yeah, it I think it's at four right now, but I need to reevaluate because, again, it has lost a little bit of luster since I first saw it for me again, because I don't want to go back in um, and watch it again. But uh, you're telling me you'd rather go watch Shirley or Invisible Man more than rewatching Tenet uh surely yes um okay and definitely boy state and definitely i'm thinking of ending things um well that's because you can't you can't possibly understand that movie without a second watch it's even worse than tenant in that just in like tenant yeah i was, like, I was gonna say it's, it's, I was gonna say it's even worse than tenant in that dimension i don't know <laughs> all good though incomprehensible but yeah we'll agree to disagree on that one and, and we'll move on from this subject scott uh let us that should do it for our discussion of tenant Maybe we can get Jay's thoughts on another episode. We didn't put a like score that. on it. Oh, oh, well, I just assumed that you're going to give it a 10 because it's one of the, it's the best movie of the year. <laughs> I'm kidding. I can't believe I forgot to put a score on it. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Scott, what, what are you giving 10 out of 10? Uh, 8.4. 8.4. Uh, Scott, I think it'll surprise you to know that I'm actually giving it more or less the same score as you, but the enjoyment factor is just uh, so much higher. I'm giving it 8.7. Oh, okay. But score is not always uh, about enjoyment for me. I know we we slightly differ on our philosophy of scoring movies, um, but in terms of you know how I think about that thing, eight point seven. It's definitely not a perfect movie. I think that there are there are some very clear flaws in it. That just the the sheer visionary nature of the movie and the inventiveness of how everything is displayed on screen. It's like one of those things where it almost makes up for all of its flaws. Right. It almost makes up for every single one of them and in the way that it does everything on screen. And that is commendable in my department. All right, Scott, that should do it for our discussion of Tenet. Let's take a short break. When we return, we'll be talking about how theaters are probably closing again soon. Barry Jenkins is directing a new film in the Lion King franchise. That was some big news this week. And Borat has a sequel and it's coming out this month. We'll be right back.
Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It's Scott. Uh, three items to hit through. The first one, we can be brief because we've kind of already been touching on this point the last two episodes, and that's around all these calendar changes. Scott, you know, we've had Disney moving, uh, moving movies left and right out of windows. Warner Brothers more or less doing the same, not entirely out of this year, but a lot of them moving back to the Christmas at the to the Christmas window at the earliest. And the latest uh, contributor to this is No Time to Die, which has moved back to an April release date, which then saw Fast 9 or F9 or whatever they're calling this film, uh, move back to late May. And all of this has spelled uh, maybe a, a untimely reclosing of movie theaters. Last night, uh, as of recording, Regal announced that they were closing all of their theaters in the U.S. at the end of this week. AMC has not made the same announcement yet, but I can't imagine that they won't make the same announcement. Uh, if it's not this week, then next week. I don't think uh, any theaters are are long for this world right now, uh, because frankly, Scott, as we've kind of been saying for the last couple of weeks, there just aren't any new movies coming out, and now there won't be any new movies coming out until Soul on November twentieth, and I think that none of us really believe that film is going to come out uh, on November twentieth, at least not in movie theaters. So, Scott, any uh, commentary on this? Like, what I guess you could make the joke that you know, Tenet saved movies for a month. <laughs> And now they're closed again. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wonder if Tenet in the long run may have done more harm, right? Because I, I think very much so. Yeah, you made, you made the point that like it's actually costing theaters probably more to stay open now than and, and when they're not doing that much business than it was when they were just like holding you know strong closed and in the middle of quarantine. Now they're going to have to close again. And the prospects are grim, to be honest with you, right? Like, you know, AMC has already received two stimulus packages. I'm not sure if they will get another one. Um, and that means, you know, bankruptcy could be in the cards. Who knows? Because we don't know when this thing is going to blow over, when they're going to be able to open back up, and yeah. when people are going to feel comfortable with going, uh, when the big cities uh, in particular. Again, I think those are going to be a, a big turning point because you know i think that is why tenants numbers are where they are because new york and la were not open um yeah i think it's safe to say that tenant could have easily doubled its returns domestically if those two markets had been open yeah so look i don't want to be god knows i don't want to be the doomsday uh, you know profit by saying this is the end of theaters but um, it's not it's not and to be clear it's not the end of theaters like yeah AMT it, can go not. bankrupt but they will not go completely under and out of business they will retain some of their theater they will lose a lot of a lot of chains probably will, will would be the consequence of that but uh which which is a shame but um yeah it, it it's 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 been depressing just to see all of the movies going back out of out of theaters um i think for me, like yeah, it was it was it was disappointing to not have them open during the first stretch of quarantine. But I think there was always like stuff to look forward to. And now it's like now that's getting pushed. Yeah. And there's there's really nothing on the horizon for the rest of the year in theaters. Uh, and after seeing Tenet, right, I like it, it makes me be like, oh, I, I actually do like there. I definitely still treasure the theatrical experience. There's actually something about this that you can't match with in-home viewing. Um, and so I'm going to miss you know, miss that for the next few months, however long they stay closed. Uh, yeah. Look, if, yeah. We're, if we're lucky, they're when back they do close. Yeah. I mean, if we're, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just fully operating on the assumption that in a week there won't be any movie theaters open, at least not the big chains. And I think that that is a huge, that is a, obviously a huge member because I'm totally in your, in your boat there around knowing that I would appreciate the movie going, like knowing that I valued it highly, having the, 
you know, the first wave of this coronavirus pandemic make me appreciate that even more. And then getting to experience that appreciation firsthand with even something like the new mutants, right? Like, obviously, it wasn't what didn't live up to what I want out of out of something like Tenet, which I got the next week. But I have really appreciated that for now. And, you know, if we're lucky, we'll be back in a little bit like what, two and a half months um, with Death on the Nile, which is currently in December, I think. And, you know, if we're lucky, Dune or Wonder Woman 1984, I prefer Dune, but I don't see how that's going to happen. We'll see, but I don't see it coming uh, really. But yeah, if we're lucky, then if not, if we're not lucky, then like April next year, right? <laughs> right? Like, will any of those movies in the first three month window really hold if all these other movies aren't coming out? I mean, maybe. Right. Maybe we'll be welcomed back to theaters with Jared Leto's Morbius movie in March or whatever. Uh, that'd be really funny. But look, it's it's grim. And the theatrical experience is, is really special. And there are some movies I think make a lot of sense to go to VOD. But even in those movies, right? Like we talked, like I just made a comment about Shirley earlier, right? Like that movie would have been awesome to see in theaters because it's very trippy. It's like there's a very, I think there's a very clear audio, like sound design of the film that that amplifies it, which I mean, I have good headphones and good speakers at home, but not the same as seeing it in the movie theater on the big screen with the big with the big sound system. So even indie movies like that that I've appreciated over time wouldn't be the same uh, with a theatrical experience. And the reality is we're not going to get that most of the time, uh, at least and and certainly not for the next few months. So appreciate it while we can, I guess. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the next topic, Scott. Uh, I think you wanted to talk about Barry Jenkins and his next film project, or at least one of his next film projects, because uh, it was a bit of a surprise, to say the least. Yeah, this is definitely one of the weirdest movie news stories in a in a year full of weird news stories. This one definitely stands out. I think um, that Barry Jenkins is going to be directing a sequel. It's actually more of a prequel, I think, from what we're we're learning now to some movie in the Lion King franchise. <laughs> yeah, um, to the, the Disney's live action remake of The Lion King uh, from last year, directed by John Favreau. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it's it's very bizarre. Like, yeah. of course, money can buy a lot of things. But Barry Jenkins is one of the foremost voices in independent cinema, right? He took an indie film in Moonlight farther than, you know, anyone would have expected with getting it best picture. Um, you know, A24's lone best picture win. Um, he got had, he followed it up with another very, very well-received and recognized film. And if Bill Street could talk, another Oscar-winning film. Um and, you know, he, in particular, he's he's telling black stories, right? Like that is what he has done in his film so far. And so it just seems bizarre to to take this turn and um, and into, you know, big, big studio uh, films, like as big as you could possibly imagine. And something that, you know, is not going to have the originality and, you know, creativity, which uh, his other films. I mean, I guess if Beale Street uh, was was adapted um, and, um, and so was, uh, Moonlight, I think was a death from a play, but, um, but, uh, nevertheless, like the, the style in his filmmaking, I'm not sure if he's even going to be able to, to do that. And I certainly don't think he's going to be able to, you know, tell any sort of, um, significant or progressive story about black people or black representation in a Disney live action film like i just you know that is a sequel to the lion king like i have my doubts that disney is going to allow that type of you know subtext to be in their films because they want this film to be made for everyone and sad though it may be there are, are plenty of people out there who would otherwise go see these films that probably would not you know the, the same people who don't want people kneeling at football games and uh, who you know or tweet at every single celebrity and tell them to stop being political stuff like that They're, those are the people who 
they wouldn't go see this film. That, that, the same people who were mad that they did not show the, fir- the uh, American flag getting planted on the moon in First Man, um, they would not go see this film. Um, and so I, I don't know, but you know, I said it's a prequel because it sounds like this is going to tell like the background of Mufasa um, and you know maybe his early life. Um, and you know, to be honest with you, Scott, I don't care. Um, I hated the Lion King live action remake. Uh, there's absolutely no need to make this film. I guess I'll see it because it is very Jenkins, right? But um, this is far less interesting to me, right, than like David Robert Mitchell Mitchell doing a superhero film, right, where he can still flex his muscles a little bit. He's not with a big studio, I don't believe. He's not going to, you know, be adapting some existing property, as far as we know, um, with his superhero film. This, to me, is like, it seems like he's selling out. Uh, and and that makes me sad because I think that Barry Jenkins is a great voice, again, for independent cinema right now. And it's starting to become, you know, a household name among cinephiles. And uh, it's a shame that he has given in to the man. At least that's what it seems. Um, I think you, you know. mean the mouse. Yes, the mouse, of course. Uh, look, I hear what you're saying, Scott, is definitely a weird or at least surprising choice. I think that ultimately... Look, The Lion King is a story rooted in the African diaspora. I mean, the movie is about Africa, right? And so I don't know if Barry Jenkins will be, will be able to deliver a story that has emotional resonance and is a story about African-American culture, even if it's a, a, a meta narrative about that. I, I don't want to go out on a limb and say that he will or won't be able to do that because I just don't know the answer to that question because you're right. Disney is very authorial over this type of content because they want it to be four. They want those films to be four quadrants so they can make a billion dollars frankly. And I don't know how much Moonlight made, but did it even make more than a hundred million? I, I don't know. Maybe with the Oscars bump. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Bill straight made Bill Street made 20, although it's, it's Oscar win was relatively minor supporting in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. yeah it was supporting actress for a role that was in the movie for like five minutes. Um, a little bit more than that, but anyway, it's like not a, not a memorable Oscar win. We'll call it. Um, but yeah, look, look, it made $20 million and look, I'm very excited to see whatever Barry Jenkins does next. I was not expecting what that was going to be would be a Lion King prequel. Uh, he came out on Twitter and, and Point Blank said it's not a sequel. So whatever it is, if it's a Mufasa origin story or, or whatever it ends up being, right, like whether it's his relationship with Scar and 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 whatnot and how that relationship falls out, I think that there's like a lot of fertile ground there, right? Like you're talking about a story uh, about the African diaspora or rooted in African culture where you have a familial conflict, right? Like how I think there's there's plenty that could be done with that. Now, whether Barry Jenkins will be able to do that, which is the point you're making, that is a completely different, separate point entirely. And Chris Evangelista on the Slash Film podcast was making an interesting point around he doesn't. I mean he he doesn't really understand why people are so pissed about Barry Jenkins, whether he, this is selling out or not, because Barry Jenkins is going to make bank making this movie. He's going to make so much money making this movie, and that will fund whatever he wants to do next. So this could be. I guess that perspective is. He is making this movie so he can make his next three or four movies be whatever he wants them to be. He can self-fund them. He can do whatever he wants with them. That's maybe what he's going for there. That's one perspective. I am mean, I am maybe optimistic to also take that perspective yeah. on things. Um, but look, we'll see. Because I was going to say, you get Lion King money. Chances are he's going to be like, oh, turns out I like money. I'm going to do this again. Like That would be my reaction. But I yeah. certainly I hope that Chris Evangelista is right and that um, you know, this is him fueling his next decade worth of indie films. Um, but I don't know. Uh, g- greed has has consumed even the best of, of men.
Yeah, I mean, look, I think Perry Jenkins is interested in telling a particular type of story, and and maybe this is foolhardy of me, but I think that you know, tens of millions of dollars making The Lion King is or a Lion King prequel is not going to change his mind about the types of movies he wants to make. And if he doesn't feel like he can get that type of movie made with Disney, I don't think he's going to do it in the future. But that's just me. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Another in the Department of Weird News category to wrap things up here, Scott, is that Borat 2 is a movie, which we did we did learn about a few weeks back and we just didn't talk about it on the podcast. But then not only do we find out is that, of course, it has a ridiculous title, which I did not write down and we did not need to say. Nothing about Mike Pence. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. Something about Mikhail Pence. Yes. So. M- M- Mikhail Pence, I think. Something like that. I, I think it actually might have been Mikhail Blomquist, but I need to, I need to fact check that uh, for me. That's a joke for all you Fincher podcast listeners. Yeah, I hope, hope you've been listening to all of our podcast content over here at the Media Bug Podcast Network, or you wouldn't have gotten that one. Um, but anyway, so so it, it, Borat 2 is a movie that exists. It's been technically, I think, the first movie that's been shot in quarantine that's going to make a release. It was acquired by Amazon Studios, and its, it's shortened title is Borat Subsequent Movie Film, and its full title is Borat Subsequent Movie Film Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for... My, for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan uh, is the full title. So I'm really looking forward to that being an answer on the movie trivia showdown in the near future, but it is a sequel to the 2006 film. It is starring Sasha Baron Cohen. And of course it's making fun of the political place that America is in at the moment. And it's targeting and late, I think a late October release date, maybe like October 23rd or something like that. And uh, the trailer came out first guy. I don't know if you watched it or not, but any thoughts that you have on this movie? Uh, yeah, I watched it. This is not my thing. Like, it, it won't surprise you to learn that the this this is not really my thing. I will say, I think that like right now in politics is like a right breeding ground for this type of film, right? This type of like you know documentary style, you know, mockumentary, um, where you question whether things that are happening, like whether they're real or whether they're like staged for the movie. Um, I I think that yeah the, again this is this time in politics is is uh, is a right breeding ground for also what Sasha Baron Cohen what was the name of his show that he had where he did the same sort of thing a couple of years ago I I, I know what you're talking about but I I don't know yeah it was I don't HBO, remember the name right but yeah but it was pretty well well received I think and and well liked by people and Borat obviously I think is a movie that still remains in the cultural consciousness like 15 years later however long it's been um, so you know what go out there and and do what you want. He's he's uh he's maybe going to be in an Oscar contention this year um with uh with Girl of the Chicago but for which movie? <laughs> yeah. No, I I what I was going to say though is that I hope this doesn't become his Norbit, right? Uh with Eddie Eddie Murphy of course famously uh was going to win the Oscar for Dreamgirls and then Norbit came out in like January of that year and most people think that because Norbit was so bad that that killed his chances and Alan Arkin ended up winning the Oscar instead. So I hope that Borat 2 isn't a Norbit situation for him, if indeed he somehow becomes a front runner on the Oscar. Yeah. Uh, his television uh, show was called Who is America? Yeah, that's it. Also did not know he was married to Isla Fisher. Wow. Good for him. You really? Oh, that was a question in Scott's Zoom trivia last week, which uh, unfortunately you missed out on. Oh, I did miss out on that. What was exactly the question? Is who is the wife of Sasha Baron Cohen? Or I had, the, I, had I had you had to name. There were three people, and you had to name who they were currently married to. Um, and he, I, Isla Fisher was one of them. Olivia Wilde was another one, and I forget who the third one was. Forgettable questions that you're asking in trivia. It's a shame. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Oh, it was Mila Kunis. It was Mila Kunis. Yeah. Okay, I probably would not. Have, I mean, I definitely would have gotten the Ella Fisher one. I didn't know that, but I would have gotten the other two. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, Ashton Kutcher and I don't even remember the second name that you said now. <laughs> oh, Jason Sudeikis would have been the answer. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, all right. Moving on. Moving on from that. Uh, Thanks, I think Lex. that that will. Yeah. No, I just totally dunked on everyone who listens to our podcast. <laughs> I think that'll do it for. Uh, uh, I guess I'll give my thoughts. I think this is a crazy movie. It's going to be hilarious. It. I when I saw the news that Amazon had purchased the movie, I'm like, this is just Jeff Bezos just totally trying to like make true all the like wild MAGA uh, hat wearing people about how everything everything is Bezos uh, influencing this and influencing that and I was like well yeah Jeff Bezos is, is putting out this movie on on Amazon two a week and a half before the election so take that everyone yeah you're probably right <laughs> anyway all right that that will do it for this episode of yeah. of some like it's got we are coming in under the two hour mark everyone so just note that down uh we won today all right Scott where can people find you on Twitter I am at Scarby Dent. And I can be found at Shelton 2013 over on Twitter. I believe you can also find me over on Letterboxd at the same place. Uh, but you can follow our podcast on Twitter as well at Media Plug Pods. Please subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. Our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers. You can go check them all out for yourself. Decide the tier that's right for you. But we'd really appreciate it, even if you only supported us at the $1 level. If you choose not to support us, that's fine too. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed, as well as subscribed and shared, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I've said enough. Uh, we won't be back next week. We are taking a week off. Call it our fall break, if you will. But we will be back the following week to discuss Aaron Sorkin's new film, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Scott's most anticipated movie of the year so we're having back-to-back i didn't even think about this we're having back-to-back episodes we're talking about our most anticipated movies of the yeah, year so that's that. pretty cool that's pretty cool uh but until then for scott harvey i'm scott shelton we'll see you next time 